Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for this opportunity we have to come before you and to worship you and the study of your word. We ask you to guide and lead as we continue to look at the book of Judges in your son's precious name. Amen. Amen. All right, we're continuing in the book of Judges, chapter 1 and verse 22. And remember, even though most of Judges is a progressive downward spiral into deeper and deeper sins, it starts out with them still being victorious in their battles. And this is where we're still at. Uh, We talked about Judah. We talked about uh, Simeon. And we talked about the fact that uh, Benjamin did not get rid of the Jebusites. And now we're going into verse 22. And the house of Joseph also, they also went up against Bethel. And the Lord was with them. And the house of Joseph sent to describe Bethel now the name of that city before the Lord before was Luz. And the spies saw a man come forth out of the city, and they said unto him, Show us, we pray you, the entrance into the city, and we will show you mercy. And when he showed them the entrance to the city, they smote the city with the edge of the sword, and they let go the man and all his family. And the man went into the land of the Hittites and built a city and called the name thereof Luz, which is the name thereof unto this day. All right, so here we see... Battle of uh, Joseph going up against his people, and they go up against Bethel or Luz, and Bethel means house of the Lord. And remember that was named way back when Jacob had a vision of the ladder that went into heaven, and he said, "Surely this is the house of the Lord." And he named the named the place Bethel, and then left it, and they renamed it Luz. <laughs> uh, and then when they took it back, they took renamed it back to Bethel. And, uh, and so they went out and they sent to destroy the city. And they, the spies saw a man coming out. Now this has got to be something. This one kind of blows my mind. They, they go up to this man, random man, and said, show us how to get into the city and we'll spare your life. Mm-hmm. Uh, it just, the whole process of this kind of makes me wonder, you know, but also we think back to, what did Rahab say to the spies? We know what your God has done to Egypt and to all these other lands, and we know that we're in trouble. So these people were like ready to turn, turn tables against their own people really quick because they understood the power of God. Well, I think what's weird, he goes to this totally stranger telling him, well, show me the, the entrance and I'll save your life. And the guy says, you don't even know me probably thinking like but he knew that they were Israelites, and, he, and he's been watching. Remember, it took him seven years to conquer the, the territory. They've destroyed, they, they, they destroyed everybody they've gone against. So people were kind of, this is very entreating to him. You know, if you show us how to get in, we'll spare your life and your family. You know, you're, you're probably going to conquer this town like you've conquered everything else, so I will go ahead and sell my people out so that you can, so I can save my life. Yeah, and it kind of is, again, we look at this, so many times we look at what the Word of God says and we find out there's nothing new under the sun. We, to this day, we've got lots of people that will sell out anybody just to save their own skin, and it's not new. And these people go, whoever it was, you know, and I'm sure God led them to the person. These spies were led to them just as the spies were led to Rahab and, and all these things. But it just, to me, it just strikes me funny. Randomly go up to somebody and say, hey, show us how to get in the city and we'll spare you. Uh, and I just find it, I find it kind of very strange. And he showed him how to get in. Now, what does that mean? 
I, I kind of believe that the, he probably gave them the password to the city. You know, be, because you would know when you come up to the city, the gate is obvious. You know, the, the gate, the main gate is an obvious place in the city. It's easy to find. Well, there would have been a password. You know, there would be an alert, some password, some, some secret knock, whatever it might be. And basically, he's saying, you know, tell us how to get into the city and we will spare your life. And this is what I'm believing he's, that he's talking about here. You know, tell us how to get in. Because if you walk around the city, you're going to see, the, you're going to see every gate in the, in the city. So I, I, I think the show us the entrance to the city literally was more than just you know, which of these gates, did, which gate in the wall is the right gate. And I think it was more of tell us how to get in. Huh? What is the well, what what is the what is the the code, the words, the the right way to get in the entrance? Yeah. Uh, how do you, how do you get into the city? Not just what door it was. So it's a little more than just he's showing them. Yeah. Here here here's the city. Here's the here's the gate. I knew you couldn't see it from see it from a mile away, but this is the gate. Go go in that gate. You know, it was more of you know you have to knock five times and then three times and then five times or something. You know, it's or here's the password when they when so they challenge you. Cities normally would be opened unless you were at war, and then they would be closed. And at nighttime, they would close the gates of the cities, and nobody could get into the city at night. And then at wartime, walled cities were a good protection. You you yeah. you built your wall around the city so that you could keep people out, especially at night. And during the daytime, the city's walls were usually, you know, the city gates were usually open. Uh, during this period of time, when Israel's conquering everything, they probably kept them closed more than opened. And you had to know how to get into the city, and that's what they were asking them. Show us, tell us how to get in. You know, what, 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 is the, what is the code? What is the, what is the main thing? Well, there usually were multiple gates. In a city. Most cities had more than one gate. They at least had one gate, and depending on the city, they might have smaller, smaller doors that, for cities. But every, every gate in, a, in the wall made your city less secure. So many cities just would have one gate, because anything else you would, you know, there was a danger if they made it through your first gate because you had no way out, but it also was harder for them to take the gate in military parlance. Because there was only one gate, you just guarded that gate. You threw, you threw all your soldiers at the one gate and kept some people around the wall so they didn't go over there with ladders and ropes. But uh, send, the horse yeah. <laughs> send the Trojan horse in, yes. Here's your, here's your gift with our soldiers in it. Uh, they must have been drinking a lot. But then they took that city and they, they released the person. They were very. One of the things that they, we see from them, at least at this point, is when they make their word, they keep it. When they told Rahab, we're going to release you, you, know, you, you and your family will go, they kept their word. They told this guy they'd release, you know, release him and his family, they kept their word. When they talked to the Gibeonites, remember the Gibeonites tricked them into pretend, you know, pretending they come from a long, you know, we came from a long ways. When we left, our, this bread was fresh in the oven. You know, they're only a day, a day and a half away, you know, and, you know, they lied to him, and yet they believed them, and they kept their word, even though they had been tricked. So 
at this point, they're still honoring God as far as keeping their vows and being honest. When they make, a, when they make their, their statement, they're, they're going to keep it. And again, we've talked about this, something that God expects his people to do. When we make a promise, he expects us to keep our word. And they were really good about this. And of course, it made the battle easier. They found out how to get in without having to circle the city or, or go into battle. And you know, we in our day don't really understand how powerful walled cities were back in that day, because in our day, we just dynamite them and blow a hole in the wall <laughs> or, or bombard them with, uh, you know, with big, big uh, artillery pieces until the wall fell down. But in their day, a wall was a very strong protection because you, you, especially in this day, they had not developed the mining techniques and tunneling under and all the stuff that they do now that they did later on to, to knock down a wall. Huh? Oh, the Great Wall of China. Yeah. It didn't really keep them out, it kept the horses out. Which then made the enemy less strong. All right. Let's go to 27. Neither did Manasseh drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shiran and her towns, nor Taranak and her towns, nor the inhabitants of Dor, nor her towns, nor the inhabitants of Iblilam and her towns, nor the inhabitants of Megiddo and her towns, but the Canaanites would dwell in that land. And it came to pass that it, when Israel was strong and they put the Canaanites into tribute, but did not utterly drive them out. So we look at here, and Manasseh seems to be very weak. They didn't, they didn't put anybody out, it looks like. Uh, and they're going to be in trouble. Well, because they're, they're split right now, right? Because yeah. half of them stayed on the other side. Yes, Manasseh had half and half. Which they also didn't get as much land on that on the west side, because they already had a very large chunk on the east side. But they did not get rid of their enemies, and it said what they did is they put them to tribute, and that meant they made them pay taxes, and they made them pay taxes to them, but they still had an enemy within their territory, and you know this is something we've mentioned, you know, we as Christians need to make sure that we keep the enemy out of our life. And because when the enemy is left in our life and our territory, we are in trouble. We are in trouble when we leave a spot. And if you've ever started having victory over some sin and you leave just some small part of that sin in your life, uh, we've talked about this, you know, if somebody's given up alcohol and they keep a bottle in their bottle for emergencies. <laughs> Uh, you know, their favorite stuff. I'm going to keep it in the back corner of the, of the pantry or the back corner of the, under the sink or you know, in the back garage just in case. Well, when you make a provision for the flesh, your just in case is going to happen. It just is a, it's a guarantee. If you have a lust problem and, and you put yourself, I'm going to just in case, I'll do whatever. You know, you get some guy who's gotten married and he keeps his little black book just in case. Well, he's pretty much guaranteed that his just in case is going to is going to happen. First bad fight he has with his wife, he's going to pull out his book and say, "I have a just in case here." Yeah, and I know I'm using some examples of a little far fetched, but you know we do this in all of our areas of our life. We kind of map out this little territory and say, "God, I like this one. You can have every bit, every part of my life, but I want to keep this little area. It's just a small sin, and I just want to keep it here just in case." 
in the sad thing? Oh, we don't say it that way, but that is what we're thinking. Think everybody has that? Oh, everybody has something in their life they do that with, because that's the way we are if we're in our flesh. Now, can you have an area that's so crucified that you don't have a just-in-case in that area? Yes, uh, because you're saying, I'm giving it completely over to God. But there's going to be some other area that you have a just-in-case, just in case I fail, or this is where, you know, uh, and you're right, we're, we're not sitting in our mind saying, I'm going to do this just, you know, just in case I fail, I want to I have this in my life. It's just something that our flesh there, puts there. I mean, you may be perfect everybody else, but what you watch movies, that's what you mean. Right? It could be, yeah, it could be anything. Yeah. It could be any number of things. It could be any number of things that we have in there that is a weakness in it, and we set it aside and don't look at it, and usually it'll be something of, well, it's not really that big a problem, it's not that big a deal, until it grows. Until it grows. It's the whole idea of you start telling a lie. And you tell a lie because you want to stay out of trouble. And you think it's the best thing to do is to tell this, tell this lie and nobody's going to be hurt. And then you have to defend that lie and defend that lie and defend that lie. And before long, you've got this great big monster out there that you don't know how to get out of the issue. And the problem that comes in is when we start trying to hide our issues. And usually it's trying to hide it from God, which makes no sense. But you know, how many times do we try to hide something from God? You know, God, I've got this problem in my life, but I'm not going to tell you about it. <laughs> because if I don't tell you about it, you didn't know it happened. And again, we're not saying that to him, but you know, we're thinking those terms. If I just don't admit it to God, he won't know that it happened, and I can try to hide it from him as the consequences fall upon us. You can't hide it from God, but humans have a great capacity to lie to ourselves. Yeah, we have this fantastic capacity to lie to ourselves, and it doesn't understand sometimes how we can do it, but we, we do it a lot. Lying to ourselves is usually more trying to justify our actions to ourselves rather than even lying to ourselves. You know, somebody said it earlier, you know, it's not that big a deal, it's just a small thing. This is where you can look at your life and say, how close am I to God by how willing and easy you find yourself justifying your actions? Because if you will, can justify your actions and you're going, maybe I need to get closer to God because the closer we are to God, the harder it is to justify our actions because we're starting to see things the way that God sees it. And then when we see it the way God sees it, we repent and confess, you know, confess and repent and turn back to God. Now, if we could just live that way all the time, we would be very, it would be great. And hopefully each one of you have been there, or at least in certain parts of your life, you're so close to God that you go, oh man, I, I can't do that, God. I'm going to repent. I've messed up and, and correct my life. And I've changed. I mean... It's amazing how many things I can't do that I won't even do because I know before. You know, yeah. we, when we studied James, what impressed me the most was that I have this to myself all the time. Just to think the sin is the sin. As long as it leads you to repentance and not yeah. saying, let's go ahead and commit, commit the sin. It's, as a Christian, we hear that and it, it leads us to stay fur, you know, more pure in our thoughts. The non-Christian hears that, well, if it's going to be the same, I might as well just go do it. And it's and this is why I always stress, even though the sin has been committed in your mind, the consequences are not the same as actually going out and doing it. I'm thinking in my mind, I need to stop thinking about this. I'm bored. I need to do something else. 
and that's a good and that's a good way to go. When Jesus said that if you've lusted after a woman, you've committed adultery within your heart, there's a big difference in the consequences of just thinking the thought and actually going out and committing the thought. Because where we think, where, we, where our mind is, is where we'll eventually come out. Jesus said, out of the abundance of your heart, you will speak or act. And so this is why when people end up saying, well, I don't know where that came from. Well, I can tell you where it came from. Thinking about it, you've obviously been thinking about it. This did not just pop into your brain all of a sudden and come out of your mouth or, or your activities. Especially when we say something. You know, when we say or we react to something, there's a lot of thought that usually has gone into the attitude behind it. You know, we don't just all of a sudden pop off and say something without having some thoughts processing in our heart. Now, do we think about the exact words? No, but the attitudes that come across. And this is something I've been really looking at myself on and saying, is there an attitude in something that, that I say? Even if I don't say the wrong thing, if I, have I had the wrong attitude? Have I been dwelling on the wrong things? And this is why I try hard to make sure I'm thinking in, about God and his thoughts. Because how easy it is to just criticize or be unloving or unkind because it really shows what's in our heart. And that's who we are in the flesh, which makes it even worse, because it's easy to be these things if they're not crucified. And this is what we look at at Manasseh. Manasseh didn't get rid of its enemy. And as we go further in Judges, we're going to find that these enemies they did not get rid of are going to cause a lot of problems, which is why the whole purpose of this first chapter is to say, yeah, the Canaanites are still there. Later on, we'll read about the Canaanites. Oh, he told them to get rid of them. <laughs> they were supposed to get rid of all of them, but they didn't. They didn't get rid of the Philistines. They didn't get rid of the Canaanites. They didn't get rid of a number of their enemies, and their enemies have, were thrown in their sights. They kept coming back to, to get them. Right, verse 29, neither did Ephraim drive out the Canaanites that dwelt in Gezer, but the Canaanites dwelt in Gezer among them. So the Ephraimites had the same problem. They did not get rid of their, their enemies. So we see Judah got rid of their people. Simeon got rid of their people. Benjamin did not. <laughs> Manasseh didn't. Uh, Ephraim has not. Verse 30, neither did Zebulon drive out the inhabitants of Kitron, Kitron nor the inhabitants of Nitron, nor the inhabitants of Nahalo, but the Canaanites dwelt among them and became tributaries. So again, we got the Zebulun tribe not giving to their people and saying, we're just going to make you pay taxes. But God allowed that so because of things that are going to happen in the future, right? God allowed them to be disobedient, if you want to look at it that way. If they had done everything that God said, there would be no revelation, no ending, right? Life would have been easier for them if they had done what God had told them to do. The consequence of disobedience is always there. The fights against Israel in like the end days and stuff would not be there if their enemy had been defeated 2,000 years before. Well, no, because there's plenty of other enemies that aren't part of Israel. There's still Gog and Magog and Persia and, and all these other places that are going to come against Israel. So they would not have been without enemies at the end time. They just would have been different enemies. They wouldn't have been the ones from the internal. And what they've tried to do here is put sin under control. And this is the example that we're looking at. We try sometimes to put sin under control. 
anytime we disobey God, there's always consequences. And I stress this a lot. You know, we oftentimes, what will end up happening sometimes is we'll look at our, our life and we'll go, God, if I do this sin, and we, we don't necessarily think this through all the way, but in reality, somewhere in our mind we're thinking this. I'm going to commit this sin, and I think I can handle the consequences for this sin. The only problem is consequences always go further and deeper than we think them through. Somebody going on and go, well, I can go get drunk one night. It's not going to be the end of the world. God will forgive me. Okay, yeah, that's probably true. God will forgive you. And you go, well, I can handle being drunk and having a hangover. You end up ruining your testimony, you know, maybe getting in an accident on your way home. We, the sin will always have deeper consequences than we ever think it through. And we always go, well, I can handle whatever I think the consequences are going to be. Other, you know, if we really thought it all the way through and knew all the consequences that would happen, we probably wouldn't do it in the first place. Because we would find out, no, it really wasn't worth it. Usually we don't think about the consequences at all. Well, we think we can handle the consequences we can think of. And that's the problem. We don't think it all the way through. We don't think it, uh, you know, number one, we don't know everything. And so we don't, we don't understand all the consequences. And God will not let us get, get through with consequences that we think is going to happen anyway. So part of it is God. God says, well, you thought this, 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 and this. I'm going to give you this consequence that you didn't think of to make you know that you, that you did wrong. And usually in the midst of our sin, we don't think about consequences at all. This is why I stress so often there's consequences for every decision that we make. Technically, there's consequences for good things we do, too. We just don't usually, we don't usually call them consequences. You know, we want to call them rewards or, or blessings, but there's always, for every action you do, there's a consequence. There's some of them we like, though. We kind of like it when we do good things and good consequences happen to us. And that is good. The law of sowing and reaping exists in the world. Okay. If you do good, you generally receive good back. If you do bad, you generally receive bad. Now, can God break both of those on either side of it? Yes, he can step in and say, okay, by my mercy, you're not going to get all the consequences you deserve. Or, like in the case of Job, by my mercy, because I'm going to teach you a lesson, you're not going to get all the blessings you think you deserve. God can step in and, and change all of that for us because he has something he wants to teach. Whether it's, I want to teach you some doctrinal things because I'm going to block some of the blessings you think you deserve, or I'm going to give you, block your consequences because you have repented and I'm going to show you great mercy. Don't count on it. Don't count on either one of them to be for God stepping in because you normally will suffer the consequences of your actions or receive blessing for the consequences of your actions. But we want to be careful. And the more we fully understand sowing and reaping, the better off we're going to be. And as many pastors have said, the laws of sowing and reaping is that when you sow seed, you get more back than you sow. All right? And you know this is true. A farmer would not sow, you know, if he sowed uh, corn and he got one ear of corn back for each seed that he, that he uh, put in the ground, he would never be a farmer. You know, I'm going to go sow 
uh, wheat, and all I want is one, one grain of wheat back for the grain that I put in the ground. It doesn't work that way. All right? And it's the same thing in our lives. Our sins or our obediences reap more than we sow. And if you think back on your, especially your sin, you always see you get worse back. You know, you do one thing and there's a whole flood of consequences that come back at you usually. And this is so important. This, is, this whole example here is showing them not kicking out the enemy like God told them to or killing the enemy and thinking they've got them under control and yet the consequence that they're going to face for not being obedient is more than they thought. They're, they're thinking, well, we've got them all under control. They're paying us tribute. We're getting rich because we left them here. Okay? Saul, to Samuel, after he was told to go kill the king, and he goes, kill all the animals and the king and all the people, and Samuel comes to Saul and says, you know, and Saul says, I've done what God told me to do. Solomon goes, what are these animals I'm hearing? Uh, the people kept the best so they can offer to God. Yeah, they didn't follow God's rules, you know. And why is the king still alive? Well, uh, I killed all the other people. And the result of that disobedience was that God took the kingdom away from Saul. Now, sometimes consequences can be pretty strong. David's sin with Bathsheba meant that he had, God said, the sword will be in your house for, from that time on. And he had battles with his own sons trying to take, take his kingdom from him. And each of his generations thereafter had these problems. And they had very strong problems with women. David had a problem. David had a real problem with women, if you think about it. He had, I think it was 10 wives. And Solomon really had a problem with women. He only had 1,000. And the rest of them didn't quite have as many, but they all had more wives than they, than they needed. That's a lot. Well, David had that problem. If he saw somebody he liked, he took her too. So he just didn't do it quite as bad as Solomon did. He was a little more discerning. He, he, he was a little more, I really like this one. I don't need this one. You know, she, she's pretty, but I don't want, you know, David was not quite as, as, uh, as lustrous in that uh, aspect. Hey, well, it's, he was actually, in, in Solomon's case, he was trying to find fulfillment through relationships. And a lot of people try to find fulfillment through relationships. That was just one of the areas that he was trying to find you know, fulfillment in. He tried to find it in wealth and relig- you know, in, uh, uh, women and products, uh, you know, uh, service areas. And, and it talks about uh, alcohol and probably would have included whatever drugs involved in that day. You know, he tried everything there was to be fulfilled, after, especially after he left God, because he started right. And then he went away from God and was trying to fill that hole that he knew that needed to be filled. And that's even worse. To try to fill the hole when you know what that hole needs to be filled with is worse than trying to fill it before you're a Christian, because you know better. You know what you're missing. Have you ever been backslidden to a place where you know you're missing God and you, and you won't turn back to God to let God fill it again? And you're trying to fill it with everything and you are worse off than the lost world was because they didn't know what fills that emptiness. 
When we backslide, we know what it is and still, res still resist doing it. Somehow pulled away from God, whatever, whatever brought that about. He, and this is why I'm saying it's, it's worse when you are away from God knowing that he is the fulfillment and then you try to fill it with everything but God and you know it's not, not right. And before you're saved, you're trying to fill, fill that God need and you don't know what is, what is supposed to fill it. So you try all kinds of things. But when we backslide, we're really without excuse and we know that we're missing and nothing is going to satisfy. Nothing is even going to satisfy temporarily when you're backslidden because you know it is just not as good as, as God filling it and you know what you're missing. Do you think he backslid or he was already at that point? I can't really answer that. All I know is Solomon was following God and had the right, okay. right request when he was starting the kingdom. God said, I want to give you a gift. Pick any gift that you want, Solomon. And Solomon asked for wisdom. And God rewarded him by saying, you asked for the right thing. You could have asked for the lives of your enemy. You could have asked for great wealth. You could have asked for a long life. But because you asked for wisdom to rule your people... I'll give you the wisdom and I'll give you all the things you didn't ask for. And somewhere between a young starting out king being used by God and probably led to pride because he was the wisest man that ever lived and knew, thing, knew everything, you know, knew more than any other person. I can't say everything, but he, was, he knew botany, he knew taxidermy, he knew metallurgy, he knew all these different things in the sciences and all kinds of knowledge. Somewhere he probably got so proud that he left God, and then we had this downward spiral of him trying to find God, which is what Ecclesiastes is all about. We get to the place where we forget that it's God that gives us the ability, and it's God that gives us the blessings, and once you do that, you things are going to be in trouble. God gives you like, it could be anything. God gives you that skill, or is that something that you, the skill that you learn? And you learn it so well that well, God gives you the abilities to do it. If he didn't give you the abilities to do it, then most theologians will tell you he gives you the ability, you know, talk to the people who make lots of money. God gave them the ability and the, and the, the, the desire or the, the skills to be able to make that money and make the right decisions. Now, does that mean everybody uses it for God? No. Wow. Now, when you start developing your gifts, that God gives you, the problem that you can end up running into is that you start using it so much that yes, you start having some more natural talents added to it, and you can get very careful going back to this idea of you start thinking, look what I have done, look what, look what I am accomplishing when it is all God who gave you the gift, gave you the training, gave you the, the ability, put the right people in your life, you know, this part we don't even think about, you know, like we were saying. Maybe he put a mentor in your life that taught you how to do these things, and your talent then took over. You, 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 you learned how to play the guitar, and you put the right person in there to give you the basics, and, and then your talents, your natural talents took over, but God put that person in there to get you started and, and move you on. You know, very few people just pick up something and just automatically do it, though that happens. You know, it, it does happen. And we've got to keep in mind that everything that we do is from God. And the minute we start thinking it's all us, we're in trouble. No matter what it is. Yeah. If you've got the voice to sing, 
there are certain things you can do to develop that talent. You can learn how to develop it. You can learn how to, how to make it stronger. But as soon as you start forgetting that it's a gift from God, you're going to use it wrong. You're going to use it in ways that aren't of any true value. You know, somebody who is a excellent workman in whatever, electricity or buildings, you know, that's a gift. You know, and I look, and I tell you, I, I look at it as a gift. Those who have it don't really look at it as a gift. It's such something they've done all their life. But taken from somebody who can't nail two boards, two pieces of wood together and let them stay together long, you know, it's a gift. And I understand. I've studied it. I've, I've, you know, I've looked at it. And I don't have the gift to, to do that kind of stuff. You know, we need to look at it. This is something God gives us. And then how are we going to use those gifts that he gives us? You know, he gives us talents. He gives us desires. And what do we do with them? Is there anything wrong with any of those gifts if it's used for God? Absolutely not. Whatever, if it's used by God or used for God, we need every bit of talent out there because every job needs to be done. And this is why I say over and over, in the church, God has a job for every single person in the church that, he is, that they are uniquely gifted to do whether it is to clean the church or to do the landscape or help maintain the church or to teach the children or even if you get a big enough church to, to work in the nursery. There are some people who do not belong in a nursery with the, with the kids. And they would be driven nuts. And then there's others that just love, you know, to hold a baby is the greatest thing in the world to them. You know, to be with the kids is the greatest thing in the world to them. And others like, I don't want to be anywhere near these kids. And we need to be able to say, what is our gift, God? What, have you what, do, what are you asking me to do? And then minister in those areas. And be very happy that he's given you a gift to use. Because we all have, a, we all have something that is our gift. And we just need to find it and use it. How do we find it? Well, the simplest way is just keep using it, you know, trying things. Uh, sometimes you know very clearly what your gift is. Sometimes you have to just keep trying things until you find out hey, I enjoy this. And I said this over and over. When you find the area that God has gifted you to work in, you're, you're serving God and you, know, you almost think you're having fun. At least I've had. You know, God, I just enjoy what I'm doing. Is this, is this really serving you? Am I really serving you and having this much fun, God? And it's very important. You know, and I really truly believe that when you find the thing that you're having fun serving God in, You've, you, you're there. I cannot picture doing anything but teaching. That is my fun. It always has been for, for most of my life. I've been teaching Sunday school or teaching Bible studies or whatever. I enjoy teaching. I enjoy the hours of study going to, to get ready to teach. I enjoy the, the looks on people's faces as they learn something, as their lives change and they become stronger Christians because of the little piece that I've had in the life of just trying to get them to understand the Word of God. And, you know, for each of us, we need to find that place. Because if you're doing what God has gifted you to do and, and, and has called you to do, there's nothing better. There's nothing better, and you don't feel all burnt out. If you try to keep doing everything in a church, you're going to get burnt out. Did that when I was younger. Tried to do everything. It doesn't work. <laughs> You can't do everything. You need, you need to do what God has gifted you. All right, verse 31. 
Neither did Asher drive out the inhabitants of Aku, nor the inhabitants of Zidon, nor of Alab, nor of Akzib, nor of Helbab, Bah, nor of Afik, nor of Rehob. But the Asherites dwelt among the Canaanites and the inhabitants of the land, and they did not drive them out. The Canaanites appear to be the one that doesn't get driven out. Uh, we know also that they didn't get rid of the Philistines because the Philistines are going to be a problem for them later on. But the Canaanites are the one that is seeming to be not driven out, at least, in, at least as far as the book of Judges is concerned. And they're going to be a, a big problem. Neither did Naphtali drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh, nor the inhabitants of Beth Anah, but he dwelt among the Canaanites and the inhabitants of the land. Nevertheless, the inhabitants of Beth Shemas and Bethel became tributaries unto them. And the Amorites forced the children of Dan into the mountain, for they would not suffer them to come down into to the valley. But the Amorites would dwell in Mount Hears, in Ajalon, and in Sha'abim. Yet the hand of the house of Joseph prevailed so that they became tributaries. So the Ammonites did not get burned, uh, had a problem, and Dan had a problem. Now, Dan is the northernmost tribe, and they're always going to have problems with the enemies, which is kind of strange, you know, understandable, because they're also the first country you come in from the north. First place you get to is Dan. Uh, so Dan's always got this problem because they're up above the Lake uh, Galilee, so they're, you know, at least on the east, uh, east side, you've got the River Jordan kind of blocking you. The Transjordan, two and a half tribes, they're always going to be in trouble because they're on the wrong side of the Jordan. And that means that the enemies, they're easily taking them. And down in the south, they had a little trouble, but they have a desert in between them and, and Egypt, so they didn't have quite as much trouble as the north, north did. But Dan did not get rid of the Ammonites in the valleys. The, Dan was stuck in the mountains. And you look at that, you know, the Ammonites weren't even put into, into tributaries. They just basically were so strong that they were never conquered by the, by the people of Dan. But it says the house of Joseph was able to get rid of the Ammonites in their area and made them tributaries. So, and then and the coast of the Amorites was from the going up of Akarabim from the rock and upward. So again, the Amorites are holding a large territory. And we look at this and we say, we started out with very strong victories at the beginning of this, of this chapter. And we progressively have gotten to the place where less and less victories are happening and more and more enemies are being left behind to be a thorn in the side of their uh, existence. And we know to this day that, you know, we look at, because we know the history of things going on, that there's going to be all kinds of problems. And these people are going to be problems not just for them when they first get the land. They're going to be problems when Saul is reigning as king, when David is reigning as king. Because even when we look at David and Solomon both, who had the largest kingdom of, for Israel, they did not get rid of these people either. They put them as tributaries again. And 
there's a problem here with this tributary. By putting the sin, putting the flesh under control, you're setting up the problem for them to come back. And again, this is the picture. This is the spiritual picture we want to take from this section. God tells us to get rid of sin, crucify the sin, let it be crucified, be put on the altar. And yet so often we go, God, I got it under control. It's caged up over there. I've got it. I've got it under control, God. It's in that cage over there. It can't get out until I open the door. And I've got it under control. I can get it. It's, it, it's not a problem. You know, uh, who was that famous uh, animal tamer, Siegfried and Roy, who turned his back on his, on his controlled wild animals and ended up paying the price? You, know, you cannot cage and, and tame sin. Sin will eventually win if we try to cage it, if we try to control it, if we try to make it a tributary. We might be able to put it under control for a period of time, depending on how disciplined we are and how, how strong we are in our own desires to, to be victorious, but it will not be put under control forever. It must be crucified, it must be put on the altar and got rid of. Otherwise, we're going to have problems with our flesh. And all of us know that. There's areas in our life where we think, I've got it under control. I've got this part, I've got this sin so tamed, I don't have to worry about it. And it always, always <laughs> will bite us if we get that attitude. That is why we're told, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. We are a new creation that God says, I am taking out your sin and making you new. As we learned in Ezekiel the, last night, that he puts a brand new heart and spirit in us because he doesn't want the sin there at all. And we've got to keep this in mind. Adam and Eve had the capacity to be perfect. They were created perfect. And they traded their perfection and their walk with God for sin, and they died. They died spiritually the moment they sinned. God said, the moment you eat of the fruit, you will die and they did die. And then from that point on, they started dying physically. It only took them almost a thousand years to die, but they started, they, they died phys, uh, spiritually immediately, and God had to come in and offer the sacrifice and clothe them and renew a relationship with them. And this is what he does. Every single human being that's been born since that time has been born dead spiritually. All of us are born dead spiritually. We will sin because that's who we are and we don't have a relationship with God until we come into a relationship with Jesus Christ and he gives us a renewed spirit. So this is something, you know, big, big thing these days is zombies and everything. But you know, in reality, every human being is born technically a zombie. You have no life. You have no spiritual life. We are dead. In our case, though, God can make us alive. He wants that relationship with us. And ultimately, that is his desire, is for us to have a relationship with him. And so many people will try to make, instead of a relationship with God, they'll try to make a list, big list of rules. Let me, let, me, let me give you God, you know, here's my list, God. And you know, even as Christians so often, we'll start with a relationship with God, and then we'll get to the place where we're following rules. God, I just have to do these things. And then when we start replacing our relationship with God with a whole bunch of rules and activities and stuff, 
we start feeling distant from God and saying, God, why don't we have this relationship anymore? And God's saying, well, because you're trying to follow all your rules. Now, is there anything wrong with the rule, you know, the list of rules? Not necessarily. It is a great thing to read the Bible every day. But if you're just having a big list of rules saying, I've got to check that box off, God, I've got to get my Bible reading in. I've got to do my prayers. I've got to go to church. I've got to do this. I've got to do this. I've got to do this. They all may be very good things to be doing. But if our relationship with God is taking the back seat to the rules, we've got a problem in our life. And we're, and we're going to feel very distant from him. But again, it's not that anything that you can make on the list of rules is a bad thing. It's a good thing to read your Bible every day, especially in the morning. It's a good thing to have time scheduled for prayer. But what is the purpose of it? Am I doing it just so I can say I've done it? Or am I in a relationship with God and saying, I've got to read your word, God, because I want to know what you want me to think about today, and I've just got to get into it. You know, God, I've got to spend time with you in prayer, not so that I can check off a box saying I prayed, but God, you and I need to talk. God, I need to speak to some people about you each day, not because I've got to check off a box that I witnessed, but because I love them so much and I want them to come to you. you know, God, I want to come to church, not because it's a box to check off to be at church, but I just can't. I'd love to be with God's people and with the family and, be, and, and listen to people edify and build up and teach. Not because I just don't look at church, oh, got to get my box checked. <laughs> Got to get my butt. Got to go to church because, you know, even though I'm on this, you know, thing about you know a checklist, there's nothing wrong with the things that I'm saying that are on the checklist. But if we make them our, basically our God, I've got to do these things or else, we've got a problem. Yeah, it's got to be I get to do these or I want to do these things. But I see this happening quite frequently. You know, I'm doing this, I'm doing this, I'm doing this. It becomes obvious when you're doing it for the right reason because your life changes. You know, and I love that, uh, that term, I get to do this. I get to come to church. I get to, study, you know, to read God's word. I get to, you know. Have you ever really thought about the idea that we get to pray to God, we get to appear before God, the ruler of the universe, and he actually grants us an audience? Do you know how many religions do not feel that they can approach their God unless they've done just the right things to be able to maybe be accepted by God? We get to go before our God and give him our petitions, and he listens. I don't have to go and spend 30 minutes in confession and, and hope that I've cleaned up my life and give him enough offerings before I can, before I can appear to him. I can just appear for, before him and say, God, thank you. you know, we've got to understand that that is a great blessing that many, many religions don't have. And most religions, you can't just go to your God and say what you want to. You've got to say the, the prayers that are prescribed for you. Otherwise, you're not going to get there. But, you know, there's so much that goes on that you have, you know, that in religion that you have to do. Which is why we really emphasize the fact that Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship with God. And it, it really is. Now that doesn't mean we don't follow rules eventually because God changes who we are and we will follow his rules, but our motivation behind following the rules is totally different. 
my motivation becomes, I want to serve you, God, I, or I get to serve you even better. I get to serve you, God. If you've ever looked at any other religions, the greatest thing about Christianity is I can know that I'm going to heaven because it's all about Jesus. And it's nothing about what I have done. Every other religion out there is all based on works. Have I done enough? Have I done enough good things to offset my bad so that I will be accepted? And in every one of those religions, you never know if you've done enough. Number one, you don't know if it's even a one-to-one ratio. You know, I did one bad thing, I do one good thing. Well, you know, I killed somebody, how many good things do I have to get, you know, to get over that? Or I stole from somebody, how many good things do I have to do to make up for it? You never know what the, what the relationship is. But this is the problem with any works-based religion. And the sad thing is how many Christian churches have a works-based religion. They'll tell you about Jesus and that, that you need Jesus to be your salvation, but then they'll give you all this whole long list of works that you have to do to prove that you're a Christian. It's really a sad thing, but we want to keep in mind, and I've said this so many times, if I am a Christian and I'm in a relationship with Jesus Christ and, and there's a personal relationship, I am going to start doing good things. I am going to start being more and more like him because he is changing who I am. But I'm not doing it in my way to heaven. I'm just doing it because he's changing who I am. And this is why grace is so wonderful for us. It's all God's grace. And by learning that it is all grace, it does not lead us into desire to go get as much grace as possible. You know, that's, and Paul said, you know, should I send the graceful abound? He said, God forbid. You know, he already understood that many people were going to say that. But if we are really understanding God's grace and the cost of his grace, it leads us to really want to serve him in the greatest possible way. Grace does not become a license to sin when you truly understand it. It becomes, God, I am just so thankful for your grace, but I'm gonna, I want to lift you up in everything I do and help me lift you up. You know, matter of fact, law tends to bring, us, bring out sin more than grace because law is hard to follow. If you're trying to follow rules, you know, Think about this. If you've ever been in a relationship with God and you start following the rules, it gets to be a really miserable life. I can't do this. I can't do that. I can't do this. I really want to do this. You know, and, it, and that's usually what happens. The minute somebody tells you you cannot do something is when you really want to do it. And that was the problem in the Garden of Eden when, when God says you can eat of every tree but this one. And then all of a sudden that tree became the one they wanted to eat from. And they hung around that tree a lot, obviously, because that's where Satan found them. Hanging around the tree, probably wondering why we can't eat of this tree. Uh, it sure looks good. <laughs> and how many times do we do that with sin? We know it's wrong, and we kind of hang around it. They go, well, you know, uh, what could the consequences be? You know, what, you know, what really is the problem with that? And we, then we end up falling into that sin because we're entertaining the wrong thoughts. Instead of saying, I want to stay as far away from sin as possible. And if we have God's attitude with it, we stay as far away from sin as possible. And we be careful of what we read and look at and, and think about. Because we're saying, it's wrong. And I want to honor God as best I can. And let him change our life. All right, let's close in prayer.
Lord, we just thank you for this day. Lord, help us to learn to crucify the sin in our life, to let you crucify it, and let us live in victory with us being in obedience to what you've asked us to do, and help us to be able to hear and understand what you are asking us to do. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.